coming to you from Jiva Theater Center in Rochester, New York, the ancestral and occupied territory of the Seneca. This is out of the rehearsal hall. In our second season, we're taking a deep dive into the theatrical process, even while we are still creating work from the rehearsal halls in our own homes. This season might find you listening to audio plays, streaming a solo performance online, and attending the theater in a new, socially distant manner. And in this podcast, we'll explore it all. My name is Jenny Werner, and I am Jiva's literary director and resident dramaturg. Just like last season, each episode will feature a stage manager's favorite rehearsal room calls, and I'll be joined by Jiva staff and artists and scholars from around the country for a conversation out of the rehearsal hall. Welcome, company. We are gathered. It is the top of our rehearsal room. Today, I'm joined again by Esther Winter, creative producer for Recognition Radio, Jiva's audio play festival celebrating Black voices. Esther, thank you so much for being here again today. Oh, thank you so much for asking me back. (laughs) I'm so looking forward to this conversation with two of the sound designers for the festival. Before we talk to them, though, I wonder... If there's a moment that springs to mind for you when sound design or a particularly well-placed sound effect had an impact on your experience of a piece of theater. Well, the one that comes to mind immediately, and it it feels like it happened yesterday, was when I saw um, Angels in America on Broadway, 1994. And the sound effect at the end of the play when the angel breaks through the ceiling was so amazing. The way they were able to envelop this sound. First of all, it did sound like the ceiling of the theater was coming down and it was really loud. And when the angel spoke, it was as if her voice was coming through you. It was like a lion's roar. It was so it was unusual and scary and and it was just one of the coolest things i've ever heard in theater it was oh my gosh an amazing moment amazing moment those are the kind of things that like take your breath away yeah it really did yeah i mean it was uh, like it happened yesterday i mean i can hear it right now it was so yeah. amazing an amazing sound that gives me chills just thinking about mm-hmm. like what the impact of that yeah <laughs> yeah and and I mean 1994 wasn't yesterday but no. like the <laughs> the no. fact that that's still um that's so uh such a big part of your memory um of that piece is really incredible. Yeah, I mean obviously the entire production was so amazing but that one particular and I think almost everyone in the theater had the same what was that? Like no one moved after it was after the play finished. No one moved for a moment. Like that was something I truly unforgettable, unforgettable. Yes. What about you? Uh, You know, um, for me, I I think it might be the final um, cue in the agitators, uh, the story of Susan B. Anthony and Frederick Douglass. Susan B. Anthony is at Frederick Douglass's grave and telling him about having heard his grandson um, play the violin. And when we hear that, we hear uh, Juliet Jones's gorgeous 
um, arrangement of Mendelssohn's Violin Concerto. And you see Frederick Douglass in silhouette at the back of the theater. And it was such a stunning moment for me. It's such, um, it represents um, a moment that he was searching for his whole life. Mm. Um, And it's just really so powerful. Um, And so that, uh, that stays in my mind. Um, I think that there, there may be others as well, but that's, that's one that really is powerful for me. Mm, Beautiful. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, one of the reasons that I'm so excited to talk to Larry and Christy is that music and sound has so much power to sway our emotions and our understanding. And clearly um, it has staying power. Um, And so I'm really interested in talking to them about how a sound designer uses that power wisely. Um, This is their power for good. (laughs) So let's, let's introduce them. Yes, let's do that. Um, Okay. So Larry Fowler designed the sound for the resurrection of Michelle Morgan, the fourth and final play in recognition radio. He is a Philadelphia based theater sound designer, radio imaging producer and music producer whose work spans 20 plus years. Theater companies Larry has designed for include Arden Theater, Wilma Theater, Azuka Theater, Interact Theater, Theater Horizons, People's Light, New Paradise Labs, Simpatico, Theater Exile, The Lantern Theater, Denver Center, Trinity Rep, Elian Dance, Dance for Nia, and Kalia London Dance. He's a three-time Barry Moore Award nominee for his work on Blood Wedding at the Wilma, Peter and the Starcatcher at Theater Horizon, and Hype Man at Interact Theater. In broadcast radio, Larry has been an in-studio producer and board operator for Philadelphia's Radio One Incorporated, and is currently an imaging producer, voiceover artist, and content editor for healthcarenowradio.com, an online radio station with a focus on healthcare technologies and logistics. In music production, Larry's talents weave in and out of various genres with original compositions and remixes for local talent that goes back to the mid-1990s with beginnings in the Philadelphia underground hip-hop circuit with the group Name. And Christy Childs Twilley designed the sound for We Are Continuous. She's a pianist, music director, and sound designer. Some of her regional credits include Home, Kill Move Paradise, and Stew at the Milwaukee Black Theater Festival, Five Gays Named Mo, Newsies, and The Gospel at Colonus at Skylight Music Theater. And her film credits include Alone and the new film trilogy, The Pandemic. Christy was the 2019 Footlights winner for Best Musical Direction for a professional production for Five Guys Named Mo and a 2018 Broadway World Finalist for Best Music Direction for Big Fish at Big Noise. Christy earned a BTAA nomination for Best Music Direction Original Score for Yellow Man. Some of her additional compositional credits include A Raisin in the Sun at Invictus Theater and In the Red and Brown Water at Northwestern. Christie's bachelor and master's studies were in piano performance at West Virginia University. 
What do you say? Should we call Christy and Larry? Yes, let's do it. Okay, team, we're going to run it from the top. Is there anyone not ready? All right, everyone stand by. Larry and Christy, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Absolutely. So I'm so excited to have this conversation with uh, two of the sound designers today from Recognition Radio. And I always love to start um, at the beginning. What, how, how did you get into sound design, music? Did What came first, music or theater? What? Tell me a little bit about how you got into where you are. Well, I started off as a musician first. Um, Actually, my dad's a professional musician, and so I started playing music when I was really young. Um, I went to school for piano performance, and I made my way into the theater scene in part because of accompanying uh, and in part because of also like a dance connection that I had. Um, And so what happened over time was I moved from music directing and vocal coaching into building worlds of sound. Um, And I I found that it was something that I really loved to do. um, And in particular, if someone gave me a script. So that's how I navigated from music into sound design. What was the company that uh, helped you make that big transition? I think it was probably a combination of Fleetwood Jourdain Theater and Piven Theater in Chicago. Uh, Fleetwood Jourdain asked me to write an original score for Yellow Man by Dale Orlander Smith. And then not long after that, they collaborated, Fleetwood Jourdain and Piven collaborated to create an original work called A Home on the Lake, for which they asked me to sound design and compose some music for. What was that? What's that transition like? I mean, how do you, how do you go from, um, you know, building worlds of sound. I mean, how do you, how do you get to building worlds of sound, I guess? Well, I think when you, when you study, uh, when you study classical music in depth, you're always being asked to imagine another place or person or thing. And you're always being asked to kind of create a sense of these other worlds. So now having an actual narrative, a script that allows you to have more predefined elements just gets you there faster, mm-hmm. you know? And so um, I think it's a really nice way to bridge that creative process. Um, and then of course, you know, when you've got a lot of really great programs, you can, um, you can play more with the sound. You can decide if it's going to be more acoustic or more electronic or synthetic or, you know, you just have a lot more parameters to deal with than uh, natural acoustic instruments. But it's really nice to just be given a, a script and to ha- allow your imagination to run away with it. Yeah. Yeah. Larry, how about you? Well, I got into um, sound. I didn't really take the, I guess, what I guess some would say is a traditional track into sound design. I played trumpet as a child. Um, and that turned into, you know, I grew up during the, the, the eighties and the mid nineties. So hip hop was like a huge, um, part of my life, um, still is. And so like the music making of then is what seeped inside of me. Like, you know, the electronic side of 
of production and, and sound creation. Um, and, you know, much later in life, I got into recording. <clears throat> so I did a lot of studio recording work, um, worked in a recording studio out here in West Philly called Third Story Recording um, and worked with some some pretty decent folks out here. And a good friend of mine, uh, Ozzy Jones, uh, was a director here in Philadelphia at a theater called Venture Theater. He was an associate uh, artistic director. And, um, and he also worked at um, Freedom Theater here in Philadelphia. And he was directing some shows and he asked me <laughs> to sound design a couple of things that he was working on and directing. And this was before I had a clue of what sound design <laughs> meant for, for theater. Uh, so, and he was a very like organic type. So if you did a piece of music and he was all into it or whatever, it went into the show. So that was kind of like my first foray into designing for theater. And as time went on, I was a board op for a number of years um, at the art and theater. So I got to see what I got to see and hear for the most part, um, what went into sound design. Um, so that gave me the, I guess, the technical tools for designing sound. Um, and I found that I loved it. Like, you know, some of the first sound design jobs that I did early on and I, you know, being as though I got into it late, there was still, I felt like I was doing like catch up um, <sighs> a lot. So I kind of had to learn things quickly. Um, but I found that I loved the idea of creating story with sound and eliciting um, an, an emotive response. Yeah. Out of that. You know, I was a DJ for a, a number of years and I, you know, I still do that a lot, a little bit on the side, but at heart, um, seeing a room, an empty room sort of come to life was one of the things I was fascinated by. And, you know, there was a, a little bit of a power in that. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Um, mm -hmm. yeah. When you, when you see what, you put into the atmosphere what that creates so it you know sound design for me became about sort of transforming a, a space in an atmosphere i, I kind of love that both both of your experiences you know coming into sound design i think are not not the traditional neither of your experiences are the traditional like you went to school and studied sound design and um and and worked into it that way and it's um i can only imagine that that first uh that first design that you did you was um sort of like flying by the seat of your pants but also um learning so much in the process um and maybe it what maybe you maybe i don't know i would have been flying by the seat of my pants i think <laughs> Um, but the, uh, that first design for you both must have been really a, sort of an incredible experience. Yeah, I think so. You know, um, with that, my first experience, it was actually that the sound design that I was creating was also a score and it, it, it was scored for piano and cello and they had us on stage, uh, oh, wow. playing as well. Like we were part of the set, um, which was really interesting. But with some of the other things like uh, in the red and brown water or homeland or uh, 
you know, where we're using more electronic sound, I have to agree with Larry. It's really, it's really fun to see how you can, what sort of responses you can get out of people or how much you can control their, their emotions in a moment based on what they're hearing. I don't think people realize how much sound affects them. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Absolutely. Because yeah, we're so used to hear, we we have ears and you hear and it's just like, oh, I just heard that. But it, when you're giving, when you're given a, a, a sonic cue on purpose, then that's, that's what, that's when things change. Mm. Yeah. I think my favorite part though, is creating the world, like trying to establish what does this world sound like? Where are we? Mm-hmm. That's so interesting what you said, Larry, about having, I think you said having the power, like, I mean, you are, you're controlling every single thing the audience is hearing in your world that you are creating. That's, Mm -hmm. that's, that's great. Yeah. I love that. Uh Let's talk a little bit about your, your process as far as when you are designing for a production. And I, I'm assuming it, it will probably, it probably changes um, depending on what the production is and what the production is calling for. But what, you know, what comes first uh, when you are starting your process? Is it, do you read the material first? Do you jot down ideas after, you know, you know, reading the play or the material? Do you have a meeting with the director? You know, what, what comes first? Um, I can start this. Uh for me, and it's always having a con- after reading, having a conversation with direction, mm-hmm. with the director. Um, you know, as much as that, the power that you know I, we just talked about um, is nice to have and to feel. Sometimes you're also fulfilling uh, another vision. You right. know what I mean. So, um, the director's vision. Um, you know, if they have like a clear thing of what they, clear picture of what they have in their mind, that's helpful to me because then that just gives me a set of directives mm-hmm. to to chase. Um, especially if it's a script, you know, that has like a lot of things that are just evident that are written in um, into the piece. But the more conceptual ideas. Um, those are those are the things that are a little bit more, I guess, muddied in a way because you're trying to find like the the color and the tone of of what's on the page. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Those are the things that are not so evident. Um, and how do you translate something that's not there? How do you create the tangible out of the intangible? You know what I mean? Um, yeah. Sort of idea, but yeah, I mean, process for me, and I, you know. I, probably for most designers starts out with a conversation with the director about the, you know, what they'd like to see and or hear happen. Christy, what about you? Yeah. So I always start with um, reading the script and uh, as I'm reading the script, it it really depends on the specific play. Sometimes I read it all the way through once and go back and and write down notes and ideas. And sometimes I'm jotting down notes and ideas as I go along about 
who these characters are and how I think they're feeling. Um, and then I start taking a list, a look at any locations that are listed, um, if they're there and start to consider the kind of the color and the ambiance of those places. And then if we're talking about just plays, then I start thinking about transitions, how we get from one place to the next. Um, yeah, so that's, that's how I begin. And then after that, I like to schedule a call or some time to chat with the director to see how they imagine the world, just to see if we are feeling the same way. Um, and if it's a situation where we can be very, very abstract, um, then I, I love it when those parameters are in place, you know, um, and we can dream a little bit, uh, a little bit crazier, if you will, in terms of what we hear in the sound and the space and exactly what the sound is or what the soundtrack is um, for the play. Yeah. That's so fascinating. So has it ever, have you ever had um, a case where you read the play and you're jotting down your initial ideas and after speaking to the director, you realize that you, the two you're you're on completely different pages. Has that ever happened to either one of you? Probably more times than I like to remember. <laughs> oh, really? Okay. Oh, that's um, so interesting. Okay. Yeah, like yeah, because you know, as Christy was saying, like you write down these, you read the play, and you might go back over it like two, three, four times, and you know, glean all of this information. Um, and then you talk to the director and I will say this: sometimes the director may not even have, um, mm -hmm. a, a, a clear thought about what this outside of the things that are already there on the page, they might not have a clear picture of what that sound world wants to be. And it, it Again, it depends on the show. If it's something that's really abstract and conceptual, that those things are harder to pin down. Right. I think than um, than something that's just you know explicitly what it wants to be. Um, uh, but yeah, like I, I can't really. I, 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 there was a, I can remember a time um, one time. A, a director and I were not, there was something that I think he, he wanted to, to hear. And I just wasn't like nailing that, whatever that thing was. I mean, we ended up turning it around and, and getting it on track, but there was a moment of that's not it. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, this wants to be something else. Um, so it's kind of like back to the drawing board and sometimes going back to the drawing board means like, <clears throat> sort of shaking the etch a sketch <laughs> and, right. and, and making brand new lines. You know what I mean? So it, it, it can get to that point. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I think there's probably, there's one play in particular that I think we weren't exactly on the same page. And this, this play was sort of a unique animal of its own. It uh, was a British play. It was based on a true story and it had, um, 
an actor who was also a hip hop artist. And so uh, we were using some original tracks by the author, but then we also had to create um, some sound and tracks for other moments. And I think we were a bit at odds uh, because, you know, I really like to go and think about, okay, well, geographically, this is what we would have heard. And based on the time period, this is what that would have been. And mm-hmm. this is how hip hop is different here versus in the UK. And this is, you know, there are right. all these other factors and they're sometimes they're not going that deep. So I have to decide, like, when do I take off the musician hat? <laughs> right, right. And mm-hmm. just try to figure out what it is that you want instead <laughs> or what you think it is. Um, but otherwise, I feel like most of the time we're we're pretty close. And if we're not when or when we're not, then I I try to dig deeper uh, into asking them questions about. So then at that moment, you feel this way Mm -hmm. or, you know, this does not feel tangible or this does feel tangible. Or do we know we're in this place or does this person know that this is happening? Mm -hmm. And then that just really gives me a better idea of um, the texture of the sound and and what can actually be there. And then sometimes I think, too, people, you know, when they think about when they think about sound, they kind of don't consider music and sound the same thing. But in many ways, they are, Um, you know, very abstract sound can still come across as being musical. Mm -hmm. So if someone says, well, I don't want it to feel melodic, it's like, well, every noise makes some sort of tone. Right. <laughs> so, you know, even if it's, you know, a whoosh or a boom or something, you start putting those things in combination and believe it or not, it's going to start to seem melodic. Right. It, it, it may not actually be a melody, mm-hmm. but, you know, so. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. It strikes me as you're talking about, you know, as you, as you try to get you know, the, the concept together, just how, how dramaturgical the conversations that designers, all designers have really is as you build the world, those kinds of questions that you have to ask are really, they're dramaturgical questions. And I wonder how often we see them that way. Do you, do you consider, I mean, you, you are dramaturgs in your design. Do you see yourself in that way? Uh, I, I think it was a, a learned thing for for me. Um, having to create worlds um, that have you know specificity to a production. Um, and just to kind of clarify and give a, an example, and I worked on um, informed consent, uh, which had you know was about. DNA sequencing. Well, it, it, the broader scope of the play was about um, getting consent from an indigenous group of people to okay. do blood tests and to see what kind of patterns exist to try to help that community in um, 
certain medical conditions and things like that. Um, I, in that show, there was a lot of talk about DNA sequencing, which led me down this rabbit hole of, all right, what does DNA sequencing sound like? Uh-huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> so it kind of did some more research and found that there were people that were actually doing this type of work of connecting DNA sequencing to um, to notation. Oh, wow. Wow. And that kind of became the basis for the sound, um, for the sound construct of that show. Yeah. That's incredible. You know, informed consent is a play that Jiva premiered actually. Oh, really? I premiered at Jiva. Yeah. Deb Zoe Laffer's play. Um, so yeah, so that's a, um, that, that's really fascinating, uh, that there is like scoring of DNA. That's really interesting. So how did that then impact the design? Well, it, it sort of just be, it, it made the, it made the design a bit more abstract, hmm. I think. Um, and it's in its construction, like there would, I, there would have needed to be a, a sort of maybe a pamphlet or something that went along with the show that said, Oh, <laughs> the sound of this is <laughs> constructed out of, what would be DNA sequencing, um, but without getting into all of that, it it actually helped a lot because there were things that the projection designer, um, things that he was doing that sort of married really mm. nicely against sort mm. of this um, staccato um, pixelated sound. Uh, and it sort of, it was just kind of helped to bring those two worlds together. Yeah. Yeah, I, I love that the way that you know that 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 comes to be um, that the world kind of takes shape. Mm-hmm. It's so exciting. Um, you have both also worked in so many different medium, um, uh, theater, uh, performance, um, uh, opera, dance, film, broadcast radio. What well, can you talk a little bit about sort of how the difference? For you, what's different between those medium and working in those different mediums? Um, and what, what sort of sets theater apart from that or, or maybe nothing does. That's a really interesting question. Um, I think, I think that, um, in a lot of ways they're similar. Um, if I just take, myself sort of away from instances where I'm performing, uh, in one of those, those mediums, uh, like opera or something like that. Um, I think what's constant is the idea of a palette and what goes on that palette. Um, and in instances of film, and theater, what I have found to be the most difficult aspect of juggling those two is time, right? In in plays, directors will often say, oh, you know, about five or six seconds, only, only about five or six seconds or 12 seconds 
Or can we have a three, four second fade? And I'm thinking to myself, I will make that for you and you're not going to like it. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm going to send you something else and then you can tell me (laughs) if, if this works or not, or if this is what you really had in mind, because in theater, it's like sometimes those seconds aren't enough to make what needs to happen occur, you know, and, and the beauty of film uh, is that you've got time you have uh, for your palette to build, right? Because uh, it's starting on a range of emotions. You might be changing locations as whatever sound is, or the score is building. Mm-hmm. Um, and so uh, the juxtaposition of things and duration just gives you a lot of time to dig really deep. And with with plays, I often feel like, oh, I have this really great idea. Okay, now I need to put that into an itty-bitty living space. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Because uh, we don't have that much time. But um, so I think those are the, the differences between... Um, film and and live live theater and then of course now we have this whole zooming live stream element of the two like we've right we've evolved in some into some new genre that has to carefully combine those two but not extend not extend the duration of a play by much Mm-hmm. Um, but you're dealing with title mm-hmm. cards and all these other things now. So I think that's that's the difference between those two. But I will say that the sort of the needle that kind of weaves the thread in between all of these mediums, be it classical music and opera or film or theater or whatever, is just that there's a, you have this story. Um, and ideally, we should be able to tell the story just through sound. What if no one was talking? Would you still have a sense of what's happening? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I like to add to that that um, the you know thinking about your 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 discussion, your what you were saying, Christy, about a fade, because um, <laughs> that's that, that's a very real thing. <laughs> so it, it can be a long discussion. Um, <laughs> And when you're in the theater space, you're also dealing with uh, a fade in the theater space and a fade that you hear just in your ears are two completely different things. Yes. Like you, hmm. can, you can, in a space, you can fill the room yes. subside or right. and, and grow like you in a different way than when you're just experience it, experiencing it, you know, just through your ears. You know what I mean? So that range of of feeling is different and then when you're watching a film like you're you you got this audio visual uh thing going on um unless you're actually in a movie theater that thing is completely that's different as well um so you know saying that to say like that they are different in that respect um but you know just telling the story is is where it's at like i I worked in radio for a long time um not a long time but a long enough time to realize and and see just how much um 
how much sound is part of just this contiguous or this continuous story, this thing that's just happening. Mm. Any dead air in radio is bad news. Like more than a second of, of dead air is, you know, has impact, you know, across many levels. Uh, and people tune out. Whereas silence in theater or even in an on a, on a recorded album can be used to give other information. Mm-hmm. There's like, you can find information in the silence or use the silence to, to create some other, some otherwise, you know, some other feeling, but in a, in a world where it's about the continuation of sound and telling that story, that's, that's what radio is. Yeah. That's so fascinating. And, and I think also so interesting thinking about this moment in time that, you know, due to unfortunate circumstances of a global pandemic, um, we're really inventing new ways of storytelling um, and new ways of theatrical storytelling uh, that I think relies so much on what we hear. Um, and and I, I'm interested to know a little bit about how how has what's happening right now impacted your work and your process as designers? Oh wow, what a really great question! Um, and I want to I want to echo what Larry talk a little bit about what Larry mentioned as far as like being in this space and how much that sound affects you and how much silence can be a bad thing yeah. versus a really good thing. And this new medium of, of things online and things being recorded and things being filmed, we lose a great sense of that. And part of, and part of it is because most people are listening to whatever we create just through computer speakers. They don't have really great headphones. <laughs> Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. this new medium, suddenly we lose a lot of frequency and a lot of the timbres that we would normally involve or choose because people are watching these live stream recorded post-production events um, on a computer with speakers or headphones that don't pick up those, those low frequencies, right. you know? And so the experience for the viewer really can vary. Um, it varies even when I notice when I'm creating things, like I have a really great set of headphones and I'll take them off and listen to the, listen to what I've worked on under an actor's voice. And I'm like, gosh, that doesn't translate at all. I have to stop using these really good headphones <laughs> because most people won't have them. Right, right. So yeah. it it's really makes a big difference. Yeah, we find ourselves, you know, designing, designing around that, around that complication, like around that, I guess we can call it a, a hurdle, but we just, we find ourselves creating with the thought of, this could be on a really great sound system or this could not be on a really, you know, it's about the, the presentation. So, um, it, it just changes how people experience yeah. what it so, is. And, and it, like she said, it'll, it'll vary from person to person, how they, 
what the experience is. Mm-hmm. So then do you find yourself making decisions based on like, what's the lowest quality of, you know, experience that people might have, or how do you, how do you then decide like what you can do and what you can't do? I think what I'll do is I'll just create the thing. Um, how ever, I would like to showcase it. Hmm. You know what I mean? So it, it, it becomes like, I, I don't lessen, I don't, I don't lessen the quality because I feel like somebody is going to be on something that will give them a lesser experience. Um, I think just doing the, the work of presenting the best possible product and then putting that out into the ether and then letting however it's experienced happen because it's not like we can go into everybody's home and set up like a 5.1 or 7.1 surround sound system or provide <laughs> them with provide them with the the greatest headphones like they're going to they're going to listen to whatever it is they experience whether whether it's us doing it or whomever however they experience their uh their entertainment their their you know, getting of, of knowledge and things like that. However they receive that information, that's how they receive it. Like they've been doing it that way. So like, they're not going to, um, change that. So I think, you know, just giving them the product and what you, however you experience after it leaves (laughs) my computer, I, I'm sorry if it, yeah. If it, if it doesn't give you that experience, it's like you, it's almost like you have to provide the experience for yourself. Oh, interesting. And then kind of hope for the best. Yeah. Yeah. I think a and, lot of it depends too. Like, are we talking about something that's being live streamed or are we talking about something that we're doing a lot of post-production on? Mm-hmm. Um, I've had to do a lot of both uh, because of COVID. And so the one thing I'm trying to see is where where can I really kind of maximize the richness of the sound so I don't have to lose too much. And um, depending on the play, this is where the world that we're in matters so much um, as far as what we can, what remnants we can leave behind for the quality of the space that they're in. Um, for one, for one show that I did where, uh, it was filmed and then post edited, you know, um, I had to make it seem like these people were talking while being in a void. Mm. And so being able to do that in post, instead of trying to rely on the right level of reverb and everything for actors in a moment in a live stream was, was really beneficial. Right. You know, but then when you're trying to use QLab, because, you know, they now have QLab versions to work with online platforms like Zoom or whatnot. Um, now you're talking about quite possibly losing a lot of quality because you can't EQ, you can't constantly equalize the sound based on what the output is going to be in the in the live stream. Mm-hmm. So yeah. it's like where how far can I go before I start losing richness and really 
nice sound. Right. Mm-hmm. right. That's the compromise. Mm-hmm. And, and QLab is just for our listeners who might not be sound designers. Um, <laughs> QLab is say what it is. Uh, well, oh, go ahead, Larry. No, oh, oh, uh, you can answer. I mean, you you started down the uh, <laughs> the rabbit hole of QLab. <laughs> I shouldn't have done that. Um, so it's, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm here. I'm here for uh, for, for support. <laughs> Thanks, Larry. <laughs> so it's it's a program that uh, that we use to put in sound cues, and we can time them out. It allows stage managers to run the show quickly and to just hit a button and those cues go on their own and they fade on their own. Mm. Um, it can also be used for lighting design and playing video too. If you really want to go down that rabbit hole. Um, yeah. Got it. Um, and, and as we think about the designs that you have done for, for Jiva right now, um, these are audio plays. So people are not going to see anything at all. Um, as, as you approached these, is there a different role that sound plays in telling a story in an audio play um, that is, again, different from everything else? Yeah, there's a huge difference. Um, I think in the, because now we're solely just relying on someone's audio experience, right? There's, there's no visual aid whatsoever. We don't see actors' faces or expressions. And so everything that they're saying now influences what's happening underneath and around them. And there's a very delicate balance to make sure that you don't overwhelm the presence of their voice, which should seem like it's always in the foreground. Mm-hmm. So it's a big, yeah, it's different. Yeah, I also feel like it's is is more like constructing um, an album than making something for the theater because literally every little sound nuance, um, you know, is is giving clues um, with strict attention, like Christy was saying, on on the strict focus on the words um how they're being delivered like and that's like that also there's this how things are performed um becomes a huge part of the the listening experience as well because there's now that you're just listening to something like you hear the inflection like the inflection becomes that much more powerful um, because you like you you lose this uh, the physical gestures, mm. so those things that we are those we, we hyper focus on those things now, and they just become larger. And then the sound that's under that becomes more like putting together, uh, you know, a tapestry for for like an album or something like that. Mm. That's kind of how I what I can equate it to. I think too, I, one of the things I noticed in working with this project with Jiva in, in particular was that I thought, how can I make the listener just become totally lost 
uh, how can I help them disappear into this world um, that they're only hearing? Hmm. How can I make them feel like they're with the person that's speaking Mm -hmm. so that they experience it the way the person that's telling the story is giving it to them? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I love that. That's a, that's so incredible um, to have that sort of, because you want to, you want to be lost in that story. Um, and it's so incredible to have that kind of approach to it. I have another question that, that um, m- maybe a little hard to answer um, because it's big and maybe vague, but I want to ask it anyway um, and see w- what you think about this. So you know, because so much of what we do in live theater is impossible uh, at this moment, a lot of theaters, Jiva um, included all across the country, are taking this opportunity to really make or or um, investigate how to make um, or commit to making real structural changes um, to try and dismantle the racism and white supremacy that the theater field is built on. And, um, you know, and I think that there's, um, also a a really conscious attempt to listen, um, to the, to the, the, all of the artists, especially artists of color that theaters work with. And I'm, I'm interested to know if, you know, one day we're going to be back in the theaters again, hopefully. (laughs) Um, yes, fingers crossed. And and when that day comes, are there are there changes that you're hoping might happen or that you might see um, things being different in the future? I think uh, just in overall inclusion <clears throat> from from the bottom up, I think just seeing more people of color just doing the thing, doing all the things that <laughs> the company does, you know what I mean? Um, at, at every level. That's, I mean, I can't, I, I, don't, I don't, I don't have any other broader thing. I think that is the broad thing. Yeah. Um, for me. Um, yeah. Yeah. No, I, that makes so much sense. I mean, we talk about the, you know, theaters, um, a lot of theaters are predominantly white institutions. What if that was a thing that that term didn't apply to theaters anymore? Like how monumental would that be? I think I'm looking forward to the day when it's realized that theater is just theater. It's just life. And therefore all the people involved should represent everybody that we see Um, all of us, rather than thinking, oh, I'm working on a story about African-Americans or about Latinx people or about Native people. Maybe I should go find a Native sound designer. Maybe I should go find a Black costumer. Um, I'm looking forward to the day when there's less pigeonholing of thinking you only go to find diversity for for diverse works. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, as a, as somebody who does the other side of things in musical theater, um, and is in a pit and playing and conducting, 
I can bounce back between those those two worlds a little easier. But even in that situation, I have to be careful that I'm not being called into MD only the black shows. Mm-hmm. Um, and when uh, groups ask me to come back and they ask, is there something you'd like to do next season? I always make sure that it's not the token work because those yeah. need to go away. Yeah. There needs to be no more tokenism. So I Absolutely. just think that if we can just make the theater world be like the rest of everyday world, then we're in a good place. Mm-hmm. It should not be monochromatic. Right. And, and trusting that, you know, um, like you were saying, Christy, being able to go between those two worlds, um, trusting that your people of color and have the ability to work and to work on other shows or work on white shows or work on, you know, I guess since we're talking black and white, it's like to work on a white show Mm -hmm. um, and trust that they'll be fine. Yeah. (laughs) It's like, it'll be okay. You know what I mean? Like, and not have to um, say, oh, this person, we need this person for the black show. Like you need them. You might need them for the other show as well. So just trust that, trust their work. And yeah. their, you know what I mean? And their, their knowledge. And I think that's what it, what it should be. Just trust that there's, there's stuff known that, um, how can I, what, what I want to say here, we know more than people think we know. Right. You know, it's really funny. It's like, you know, we don't walk around with a filter. Like if I get in a car, if I get into an Uber and somebody is playing music from the Middle East, my genetic filter doesn't go, oh, you can't listen to that. And you can't know what this is because it's Middle Eastern music. Right. So we're experiencing life in different cultures and, and everything all the time. The theater world should never have gotten to the point of thinking that certain people wouldn't know how to work in certain environments or Mm -hmm. on certain storylines. I mean, Mm -hmm. when I turn on my television, the television doesn't say, oh, you can't watch the show because you're a black person. So you should be watching this other show. Here Mm -hmm. you go. Right. So, you know, the theater field never should have gotten that way. You're so right. Or symphonies or ballets or, 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 or. Very true. Very true. It's so true. And I, the, you know, the, a vision of a world where theater represents the rest of the world, like that's what it always should have been. Right. I, it, that's where we always should be. Um, yeah. And that's where we, where we, you know, some theaters thought they were. And I think that it's clear that, um, that that was not true, has not been true. Um, and it's so important um, what you're talking about that, that, that we, we really truly reflect um, the world. Yeah. Yeah. If there's, if there's space to dream of being on distant planets or to have characters who are blue, (laughs) there's room Mm -hmm. to make space Mm -hmm. for Mm -hmm. diverse people. Right. I think what's happening now is there are so many, there are opportunities that are coming up for more, artists of color. And what I'm hoping is that 
it continues. You know, once we are back to whatever normal is, that the normal includes what has become very relevant now and that it continues to produce opportunities for, just like you said, you know, um, Black artists across the spectrum, not just for Black pieces. Mm -hmm. I think what I've convinced myself of after being in quarantine for what, like nine months almost or something like that, something crazy, is that actually it's not a new normal that we're probably moving toward. It's just normal. Right. Mm. I think that we have been functioning in a way that's so abnormal for such a long time that this is just bringing clarity and focus. And so if we just need to get people to move to no, this is what normal really is. Mm-hmm. This, this is what normal should be. Mm-hmm. So I'm trying to go there. Yeah. I love that. Let's all move towards clarity and focus. I think that is ideal. And I want to thank you both um, for joining us today. Uh, I know I have thoroughly enjoyed this conversation and I, I won't speak for Esther, um, but I know she's <laughs> smiling right now. Um, <laughs> wonderful. It was really wonderful to talk to you both. All right, team, that is the end of our rehearsal day. I will see you all back here tomorrow. Please check the daily call for your exact call time. Out of the Rehearsal Hall is a podcast production of Jiva Theater Center in Rochester, New York. I'm Jenny Werner. Special thanks to today's co-host, Esther Winter, and to our guests, Larry Fowler and Christy Childs Twilley. You can find out all about Recognition Radio and all four plays in the festival at recognition-radio.com. And you can find this link and more information about our conversation on Jiva's blog at jivajournal.worldpress.com. Andrew Mark Wilhelm composed our theme song and is our audio engineer. Our artwork was created by graphic designer Amanda Rickstons. Today's rehearsal room calls came from Kara Parish. Find out more about Jiva in our 2021 season at jivatheater.org. If you enjoy this podcast, please consider leaving a review for us on your podcast platform or share the podcast with your friends. And we'll see you next time we're out of the rehearsal hall.